Hello and welcome back to The Crit. We're relaunching in 2021, which to date seems to be a year cut very much from the same dreadful cloth as 2020. My name is Ollie Stratford. I'm one of your co-hosts. And my name is Christina Rampatsky. I'm your other co-host. How are you doing, Ollie? I'm doing all right. I'm in London, uh, so we're back in lockdown. Um, I don't mind lockdown too much. I quite like when um, I can lead a life of no activity and no consequence. So it's very much leaning into my wheelhouse. I like just sitting on my sofa doing nothing all day. It's it's very much my kind of speed. I thought 2021 might be a nice fresh start from the annus horribilis that was 2020. But then a bunch of stuff happened just in the first week. We're in lockdown again. Trump supporters have stormed the Capitol. Just, yeah, a bunch of stuff going on, even though we're just 13 days in. Unlucky for some. (laughs) Is it 13 that's unlucky for some, actually? Or am I thinking of, is that Friday the 13th or all 13th? I think all 13ths are considered unlucky. You know, some hotel rooms don't have a 13th floor or a a number 13 hotel room. And that's because of Judas. Yeah, I'm sure that's one theory. Well, we can come back to that later in the podcast, maybe. Yeah. The betrayal of Christ. (laughs) So the first topic we're going to be tackling this week is the role of big tech following the attack on the US Capitol. It's been the major news so far of 2021. Had us all doom scrolling on Twitter for days. Really quite shocking scenes, uh, seeing the riot and insurrection of uh, Stop the Steal protesters entering the capital. Yeah, shocking, but in many ways, unsurprising, as this is stuff that's been going on for quite a while. But of course, symbolically, it's just a different level of visibility. I think like everyone, I've been doing a lot of doom scrolling over these past few days and worried about what will happen next and what where, where US politics and society goes from here. However, one immediate impact seems to be that the attack has finally emboldened some of the social media platforms and tech giants to start to take a stand against Donald Trump and against um, far-right rhetoric in general. So throughout his presidency, we all know that Trump has used Twitter and various other platforms to huge effect. It's his main means of communicating his message. Following that capital, he's finally been either outright banned or suspended indefinitely from all of his traditional social media accounts. It was a kind of slightly contorted and drawn out process where during the rioting, he kind of got temporarily suspended and then he was let back on Twitter again. And then on Facebook and Instagram, he was indefinitely suspended. And then Twitter finally followed suit a few a few days after the event, I think. What they're also doing is looking at other social media platforms that are kind of alternatives to the really big mainstream ones like Twitter and Facebook. So Parler, Parler, Parlay? I think it's Parler. Parler. I think they're, yeah, I think the company themselves say Parler, even though it's the French Parler. Yeah. And that's a, it's a platform that presents itself as a free speech platform and caters to a lot of right-wing accounts. Apple and Google have now taken these off their Apple Store and the and the Google Play Store, so you can't access them through there. And Amazon has withdrawn the um, their web services for Parler. So it's a kind of 
whack-a-mole situation where um, you know the, the big tech giants are trying to kind of clamp down on this type of platform as as and when they pop up, which seems a bit of a Sisyphosian project. This all brings us back to a piece of legislation, I think, that we should talk a little bit about, Oli, which is Section 230 from the Communications Decency Act. It's a piece of legislation from the 1990s. Yeah. And it kind of, a lot hinges on on this particular thing. So should we talk about that? I think we should talk about that. So Section 230, its effect is that social media platforms are not classed as publishers, or at least not as traditional publishers. And why that's significant is they're not liable for the content that appears on them. So unlike a newspaper, which if it publishes something um, libelous, they can be sued for that. Social media companies are not responsible for the content that appears on them. This piece of legislation obviously uh, was put in place in the when the internet looked very different from what it looks like today. So these huge social media platforms didn't exist. And in fact, it was a way to kind of protect small tech startups from liability. A lot has changed since then. And there's been talk in the last few years of reforming Section 230. Yeah, I think from both sides of the political divide, people have taken issue with it. So the right Mm. wing tend to feel that they are being unduly censored by tech platforms and that they um, are not being given a right to free speech. Uh, The left wing, I think, point towards... um, I don't know, actually, I've just forgotten. What did the left wing point towards? (laughs) Uh, So many things. I guess... The fact that that right-wing rhetoric and violent incitement to crime seems to happen a lot. And when it's not a high-profile account, it doesn't get flagged up. You know, videos like the one that circulated of the Christchurch massacre, for instance, like that was, it was uh, allowed to kind of run amok on Facebook for quite a few days after it. The end result of this is that social media platforms are largely self-regulating. They have their own codes of conduct and can enforce or more typically not enforce those as they wish to. And this is where the Trump decision gets interesting, because I think a lot of people, myself included, very, very pleased that Donald Trump no longer has access to Twitter. He's dangerous on that platform and has encouraged some awful things. On the other side... I think a lot of uh, people on the right and also a lot of people on the left too are concerned about the power that these tech platforms, which are private corporations, have, that they control discourse online and they can make and enforce rules and regulations as they see fit. Well, I think I think the thing is that, that so people who are up in arms around like it's a threat to freedom of speech, I think there's a, there's a kind of uh, misunderstanding about what Twitter and Facebook are under Section 230. You know, freedom of speech as enshrined, in, you know, as a human right, uh, protects individuals from uh, censure and persecution from the state. So the idea is you, you should be able to state a political opinion without being arrested, for instance, unless you're inciting violence, right? But Twitter and Facebook aren't government organizations and aren't regulated as such they're private companies so they're free to moderate in whichever way they please and i suspect that their 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 moderation is more to do with um 
responding to, you know, potential reputational damage, especially amongst their advertisers, because, you know, an ad for some Amazon product on Facebook in your feed is not going to want to sit next to, uh, you know, someone inciting uh, an insurrection on Capitol. No, I think you're right. I think there is that fundamental misconception. But I think there is there is this interesting and troubling problem that these tech giants have huge domains which they rule basically um they wield enormous power with these platforms and there's something very strange about private capital wielding that amount of influence i think that i think what's interesting around this is not whether donald trump is being muzzled or not in an ex- to an extent although thank god he is being muzzled um it's whether those private corporations should wield that kind of influence and whether they should not be whether or not they should be subject to more uh, regulation from government for instance now that brings problems too because how do you legislate online is that going to be different country from country and subject to the whims of individual governments that's quite a terrifying thought as well but the current situation is hardly ideal where you have these corporations who can behave more or less as they want oh absolutely yeah and i think if anyone wants to find out more about this there's actually an article in decenio 27 a really good one written by uh, rihanna walcott in which she discusses some of these conceptions around what is social media is it a publisher is it a platform what's the difference how does section 230 apply so if you're interested in that and would like to know more i would recommend rihanna's piece we're going to crit some um, some rebrands. There's been quite a few. I think a lot of um, companies and organisations seem to feel that 2021 is a is a time for new beginnings and have uh, launched their um, yeah new logos. So uh, we're going to look at some of them and respond. Yeah, it's interest. It's interesting how many there have been this year. Like maybe this is the usual amount, but I don't know, or whether it's a case where brands couldn't do much physically in 2020 so just well to hell with it we might as well rebrand then but should we have a look let's i've got on my screen the new logo of the cia central intelligence agency do you have it on your screen as well ollie i can see it yeah i can see it it's absolutely dreadful it looks like the logo of an evil corporation you'd fight in laser quest or something so it's it's got a lot of vectors. It's got a lot of white lines on quite a plain black background. It's very self-consciously designy and trying to be trendy, but I think is probably a few years out of date. Yeah, I'm just I'm looking at it and trying to think of a way to describe it. It's it's got um, all these vectors, as you say. Uh, it's a circular emblem. It's black, white, and grey, and it it looks kind of vaguely. The background looks like um, vaguely like a topographical outline. Yeah, it looks like the album art for Joy Division. And say, if Joy Division, after the death of Ian Curtis, hadn't gone on to do New Order, but instead had founded a government agency, <laughs> it's precisely that. With the addition of like the the peaks of this 
topographical landscape have like these shiny highlights that make it look very, very early 2000s, like the cover of a CD. It's early 2000s boilerplate for uh, a sinister evil corporation that would be called something like bad core in James Cameron's avatar. It's, I think the thing which really annoys me about it is it's trying to look designy and to be cool. And I just don't know if the CIA needs to be. I don't think anyone looks at the CIA and thinks, God, I wish it were cooler. Why doesn't it have a really nice website with infinite scroll? It just strikes me as totally ill-matched to the nature of that organisation. It's part of a of a recruitment drive, isn't it? It's uh, They launched it as a way to attract a more diverse workforce. It won't be surprising to anyone to hear that the CIA doesn't do very well when it comes to leadership uh, within the organization being diverse uh, and non-white. So I suppose it's a it's a drive for that. Uh, I've seen reflections online of people pointing out that CIA are trying to recruit the sort of people that Silicon Valley is also recruiting and that they're kind of competing with with Silicon Valley in this. So I can I can see why someone might have thought Let's create a trendy kind of techie looking looking uh, emblem. It'd be interesting to see if it works. I mean, maybe I'll be proved wrong and it's a huge success and it opens them up to a lot more applicants from different backgrounds. But my suspicion is that it's not a case that young people are thinking, oh, I'd love to join the CIA if only it were sexier and cooler. I I think probably people don't want to join the CIA for other reasons. I don't know if kind of doing this design overhaul will make any difference to that. Well, from the CIA to another American institution, this is Burger King. Um, Burger King has redesigned for the first time since 1999. And they've gone back to a logo that's actually really similar to the one they had throughout the 70s to the 90s. It's a flat logo with a burger bun and inside in red lettering the words Burger King. It's pretty much the same as the previous the 80s and 90s logo and people love it. Everyone's delighted. So the new logo has been designed by uh, creative agency Jones Knowles Ritchie and they've really lent into this kind of 1970s palettes of deep brown and orange and yellow and white. Oh, I love that palette. Do you like the redesign? Yeah, I do. I think the one that Burger King has had between 1999 and and now, uh, 2021, I really don't like that one. It's It looks like it harks back to the original logo, but it's like some exec waved their hand and went, just make it look a bit more dynamic. It has a kind of tilted slant and a sort of swooping blue line and the bun look a bit like squishy and it's just like it's overly fussy and more complicated than it needs to and I think the new one which is also the old one is just much more confident and pleasing to look at. 
I actually prefer the one they've just replaced. Like, <laughs> for the record, I think New One is much nicer. It's a much better piece of graphic design. However, I think it looks like quite a lot of uh, fast food restaurants now. It's slightly hipsterish and very tasteful and nicely done. I really like that the 1999 one is quite trashy and rubbish. Like, it looks awful. But to my mind, that sort of tallies with Burger King. We did a piece with the architecture critic Kate Wagner from not so long ago, and she was writing about McDonald's, which was going through this big redesign of its restaurants with Landini Associates. And they were stripping out all the kind of old hamburglar and grimace and kitsch around McDonald's and replacing it with this very tasteful airspace thing. And Kate had this really nice quote around it, which I'm going to read, where she said, Kitsch itself, once ubiquitous, is becoming a rarity in the American landscape. Kitsch is unselfconscious. It laughs in the face of good taste and it acknowledges itself for what it is. Kitsch and fast food went so well together because they shared a common conception of being both lowbrow and popular, universally consumed. And I think I sort of miss that with the new Burger King a little bit. It's very tasteful. It's very nice. Nicely done, but I want it to look rubbish and awful. <laughs> and if there's one thing the 1999 logo does, it's look rubbish and awful. It, you're right, it looks incredibly corporate. It looks like what an 80s businessman would design for uh, a fast food restaurant, but that seems to sort of fit. Yeah, fast maybe, food? but I do think the new slash old one is kitsch as well. I don't think it's quite as polished as you make it out to be. I hear you on the sanitization of the uh, fast food chain aesthetic. That's something that is a great loss to the world. All right, then there's uh, Pfizer, pharmaceutical company of note. Big year for Pfizer. They've also somehow found the time to <laughs> to do uh, to do a major rebranding. Yeah. No, that's not true. I think that they were working on this for a few years and then put it on hold while they were developing the vaccine, and then now they've launched a new identity. Maybe we would have had the vaccine sooner if they weren't messing around with fonts. <laughs> I don't want to cast any allegations here. Mm. Uh, potentially <laughs> libelous content. Anyway. So what's the what's the new logo like then? What have they done? Well, so I'm looking at the old one next to the new one. And so the old one, it's kind of gone through a number of iterations over the years, but it, it's it's basically, it's a pill, a blue pill-shaped background and then Pfizer written in a, in a serif font in white over it. The new one, designed by the Brooklyn-based design studio Team, does away with the pill. So long to the pill. That's old news. And now we have this kind of double helix logo, don't we? A graphic at the side suggesting cutting edge technology and um, thrusting developments at the cutting edge of medical science. They want you to think not of Advil and Viagra, but of COVID-19 vaccines and very complex mRNA technology. They call it the ribbon helix. Uh, it's also blue, two different shades of blue. Which I think gives it a, I mean, it looks very corporate, but I suppose that's kind of what you, it's what you expect and perhaps even want from a big corporation. Yeah, I think so. I don't have any strong reaction to the new Pfizer logo. It's fine. Like you say, I'd expect to see it on glossy company brochures, but then it's probably what what you want from pharmaceuticals. I don't know if I'd want uh, Pfizer to have a sort of shabby chic 
logo. That would inspire me with confidence. So I, th- I think in the way in which the CIA probably mismatched the tone of their logo with the nature of their organisation, this Pfizer logo seems fairly well calibrated to what they do. We didn't record this podcast over the holiday period, uh, but during that time, there were two deaths within our industry, which were significant and I think just worth reflecting on a little bit and and uh, paying our dues to those who passed. So the first one was Pierre Cardin, the French fashion designer. Pierre Cardin was a hugely prolific fashion designer he had this he had a daily habit apparently of designing one dress every day oh really yeah he did wow i didn't realize that yeah no which he did into uh, well into uh, old age he was a gener- of a generation of designers that really came into prominence in the 60s i would say i think he started his career as a cutter for christian dior i think he even helped on the new look collection i think as you say he came into his own in the 60s and i i'm not an ardent scholar of cardan's work i must admit but for me the 60s are probably the zenith of his career in terms of uh, his design influence. He did a lot of that kind of space age, future looking fashion from that period that I think was really influential and quite impressive. Maybe in the decades after that, from a purely design perspective, his work wasn't as relevant. But the place where he really came into his own and where he has this huge lasting legacy is as a merchandiser. Yes, he was enterprising. <laughs> <laughs> to put it mildly, he 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 was a kind of pioneer in slapping his name on a huge range of products. So not only within the fashion industry, but he licensed his name to all manner of products from sardines to mineral water to frying pans. I think over 800, certainly in the it's hundreds. An absurd amount of things he did. And whether you like it or not, I have issues with some of the merchandising that goes on in fashion, for instance. He's kind of prophetic about where the industry was going. And alongside that, he was he was forward looking in other ways, too. I think he was one of the first couturiers to get into ready to wear, for instance. And he was one of those French designers that began looking at the Japanese market and overseas rather than just focusing on that um, domestic market. So someone who who alongside an undoubted design influence had a big impact on the business of fashion. We also want to pay tribute to Ernesto Gismondi, who passed away over the holiday period. And Gismondi was one of the co-founders of Altemida, which is an Italian lighting company that has really put out some incredible and iconic pieces since it was founded in 1960. Yeah, really significant brand that's done amazing work with designers like Richard Sapper and Michele De Lucchi. And I think a little bit like Cardan in a way, what makes Gismondi an interesting figure is he he was both a, an, an interesting designer in his own right. And we, we shouldn't forget he was one of the, the Memphis design movement, which was a massive moment in design history. Uh, but alongside his personal design work, um, also a talented businessman who built up this company to become one of the leading lighting brands and who was clearly very good at getting the best out of the designers he worked with. I think one of my favourite uh, things about Gismondi is that he 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 designed for Artemidia as well. And <laughs> early on, he, he had a pseudonym, 
when he designed for it, which is brilliant. He went by Orny Halloween. <laughs> or Ernie Halloween. I did it's it's O with an umlaut, R N I. That's excellent. <laughs> Halloween as in the holiday. <laughs> It's like in Die Hard when uh, Hans Gruber has to come up with an American-sounding name and just picks yes. Bill Clay. <laughs> Ernie Halloween is sort of on those lines. Yeah, it's really it's wonderful. Um, and he made some as Halloween. He made some uh, some great pieces, like the kind of chandelier glass chandeliers that look like Murano glass inspired. I never had the pleasure to interview him. Actually, I've I've interviewed a lot of other designers um, who he's worked with and people around various lighting brands. Uh, and that's a real shame. He seems a fascinating man. I think he was a qualified aerospace engineer as well. So it's amazing, rich career, really. Yeah. No, I haven't interviewed Gismondi either, uh, sadly. I've interviewed uh, Carlotta del Bevilacqua, who um, is his partner in life and in business. Uh, she's still the CEO of Artemide and uh, survives him. And our condolences with the Gismondi family. Yeah. So on New Year's Eve 2020, Flash Player, the plugin that lets you watch interactive animations online was officially retired 2020 saving the cruelest blow to last i mean flash has been on the decline for quite a while though hasn't it i mean i think steve jobs is supposed to have dealt the fatal blow when he didn't include it within iphones for instance yeah yeah and that was in 2010 so i guess it's it's been in the making for a while i think in 20 17 adobe which is the company that runs flash and that you can create flash animations with they i think they announced that they were in the process of retiring it so we knew this was coming i think the thing that i wanted to talk about was the aesthetic that it created and how it's it's actually a really important part of early internet history yeah flash all those animations all those games that i don't know early stages almost of that internet ugly aesthetic (laughs) i think a lot can be traced back to flash which it was the workhorse that really made all of that possible yeah so it made these kind of three minute animations uh, possible where it could include sounds and music and they'd still be less than two megabytes which was really important uh, early on when most people were accessing the internet with the dial-up modems yeah i think it's almost it it enabled or or complemented the amateurism of the early um, web, which I think a lot of people still find attractive. I mean, going back to what we were talking before about the hegemony of these private tech uh, corporation tech giants online, I think Flash somehow embodies some of that early utopianism around the web almost, that this was going to be a place where anyone and everyone mattered equally and could speak free from corporate or governmental constraints. I, I mean, I think that would that was never really true, but certainly that aesthetic gave something of that vibe. Uh, and I think, I guess the, the question now is, what happens to all that content if the plugin no longer works? It's one of those interesting things around tech, isn't it? That you see this huge cultural output on a particular platform that enables that. And when that platform is no longer supported or is no longer made, 
you have no way to display this stuff. So that's interesting as well of how will some of this internet history be preserved. I think there's an open collaborative project at the moment. I think it's called Ruffle or something like that, which is trying to develop a way so you can still play Flash content online. And there's also an organisation called the Internet Archive, which hosts around 2,000 items. But this, this is significant when... So much of our cultural history is now digital rather than physical and is dependent upon particular platforms or mediums to enable it. What happens to all of that when those platforms or mediums are no longer there? So our final main story for today is Pantone and its colour of the year. So for anyone who doesn't know, Pantone, the um, colour company, Every year it picks a colour for the year, which is supposed to embody the general mood and vibe of the age. Now, I don't know who really fancies trying to embody the age of coronavirus, but they, they've had a go. So what did they pick this time around, Christina? Ultimate grey. <laughs> <laughs> and illuminating a bright signal yellow. They've chosen two colours, which uh, yeah. is, <laughs> is something new. Uh, I guess they didn't want to just go for an ultimate grey with its connotation of <laughs> total bleakness and depression. I wish they just had the courage to stick with ultimate grey. Yeah, that's what we're going <laughs> to go with. That's what captures it. <laughs> um, I mean, it's funny because it's, it's a marketing trick. They yeah. do this every year and like you shouldn't read too much into it but they've they've come under some fire recently for some of their picks actually much more so than you'd expect for an exercise like this but i think the criticism has actually been fairly well founded so in 2019 uh pantone's color of the year was living coral which is this beautiful color it's a sort of soft pink but there was an issue so the criticism there was that it kind of didn't reflect the state of coral around the world at all. And uh, there was actually, there was a project, wasn't there, by an Australian design studio, I think, Jack and Huey. Is that what they're called, Jack and Huey? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, they proposed an alternative colour uh, of this sort of pale blue bleached coral, what it, the colour coral goes during coral die-off. And it's a really nice project. I think it actually made it into the Design Museum's Designs of the Year 2020. Mm -hmm. I suppose it's the sort of thing that if a company, even though it's a colour system that like Pantone that mainly helps, you know, graphic designers do colour matching. When they attempt something like summing up the year in a colour or rather anticipating the year in a colour because they always... They always announce the colour of the year at the end of the year uh, before the one that they're trying to summarise. It's it, it's like an invitation to, to this type of critique. Yeah, I think so. I think you have to be so careful. So for instance, at the moment, let's they obviously didn't do this, but let's say that the 2021 colour was something that ran a little bit close to, I don't know... Um, MAGA red <laughs> now, that would obviously be a disastrous thing and you do kind of need to be alive to that because I think red particularly in the context of a cap like no brand is going to put out a red cap for the foreseeable future right 
that would be so incredibly divisive. To <laughs> Depends on the brand. It depends on the brand, but an awful lot of brands, no, yeah, for instance, yeah, I'm sure, for sure, would steer clear of that kind of thing. So mm. colours can be significant. They did actually launch a red colour. It's not MAGA red, <laughs> and it wasn't a colour of the year. But in 2020, Pantone did this uh, period red launch that they said they wanted to help fight the stigma against menstruation with. Which in principle is a good idea. It would be um, a stigma and taboo that it would be great if society could get over a little bit. Yeah, of course, of course, it's uh, it's good to end the stigma around menstruation uh, if that can be done. I'm not sure it can be done through the launch of a a color swatch, though, especially because this this color was was a kind of letterbox red that I think many people pointed out is actually. It's quite rare for menstrual fluid to actually look like that, to be that kind of bright red colour. I wonder with that one if it's not actually part of the problem to present period blood as this like bright, fresh blood (laughs) colour that it's not actually. And if a young girl were to see that and see, oh, that's that's meant to be period red and that's not not what's coming out of me, then um, I wonder if it might actually be be damaging you know uh in itself uh, and part of this kind of um sanitization of what menstrual fluid looks like what normal men- perfectly normal menstrual fluid looks like yeah you get this kind of graphic euphemism around menstruation i think in adverts and various campaigns so for a long time in tv adverts for instance you don't use anything that looks like blood you have this blue fluid and then yeah. rec- I mean, we've, we've moved past the blue fluid but we've moved past the blue yeah. fluid but i was just i was googling around online when um we knew we were going to be talking about this a little bit. And so many of the campaigns now, okay, it's not blue fluid, but it's maybe um, red sequins, for instance, or a single red feather. Now, it, prob- it probably is an improvement, but that it remains a kind of graphic euphemism in a sense. Right. Products Brings and us projects. to this week's products and project roundup. So the first one I'm going to put forward is uh, a new collection from Belon, Swedish vinyl flooring company. Uh, they're an interesting company who uh, have worked a lot in recent years to involve design more in their process, external collaborations with designers and just embedding design values in what they do a little bit more. Uh, so they have a new collection, which is called a Merge. But the thing which caught my eye is around the launch of this collection, they have also launched a VR platform. In a way, it's kind of similar to the Balenciaga uh, game that we talked about a couple of episodes ago. Yeah, it is. So, I mean, this is still fairly limited, for instance. Uh, It's not augmented reality or anything like that. I know a few brands have played around with solutions where you can insert their products into... um, images of your home for instance this is something that's more of an art piece in a way you can look around various virtual environments and see uh, this collection i just think it's interesting because i wonder if we're going to be seeing more of this and if one of the um, after effects of the pandemic will be this greater interest and acceptance of these uh, virtual spaces yeah i haven't actually tried because I don't have the kit to try the virtual reality experience of the Bolon showroom, but I think you're able to see through it if you have a PC and the VR equipment. 
You're able to look at a hotel room and a museum space and an office with its new collections in it. And in addition to the flooring, it has all manner of other, it's like they're complete environments from what I can see from the renders. And uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, there was that show a couple of years ago, I think in 2018, at uh, Arkdes, the Swedish Centre of Design and Architecture. This is the Space Popular which, show. Yeah, exactly. It was called Value in the Virtual or some, something like that. Uh, and it was really interesting that what this what Space Popular, the studio behind it, did was was basically mount this argument about how much of the architecture of the future is going to be virtual environments, and you know how can we play around with that creatively? And of course, in virtual space, you build environments, but you're not uh, restricted by the gravity or other like. Uh, forces and rules that uh, that you would be restricted by in physical physical building. Um, well, space pop- and so no, go on. Well, space popular have been real pioneers of this, so they've done a lot of work around it. And when the first lockdown struck, for instance, they had an exhibition at the Reba in London, Portland Place, all about architectural style. And they built that exhibition again in a digital form so you could explore that in virtual reality. I think what I'm interested in now is you've always had these progressive, far-sighted people like Space Popular working around this. What would be interesting now is to see if more brands and people who are perhaps less digitally inclined might begin to explore it a little bit because in a way we've had this technology to do these virtual reality spaces for a long time but I wonder if lockdown almost gives you more of a license to do it something which in the past might have brands might have worried does it feel naff does anyone want to actually do this suddenly I think you're thinking well it's sort of the only thing we can do so maybe it gives this longer term credibility towards these virtual spaces a little the other product i wanted to talk about is a deodorant <laughs> a refill oh. a refillable deodorant that dove which is part of the massive multinational unilever has launched uh, for customers i think only in the states so far a target and walmart you can buy a refillable stainless steel deodorant holder that you can then as and when you need it you can add deodorant kind of blocks that you can insert into the refillable ones so presumably this is an effort to um, clamp down on use of plastic so using less plastic in that container and also i'm assuming less plastic in the refills yeah so they're saying that the company the company slashes almost 50% of the plastic that's used for its normal stick deodorants. I think that's to be commended. I mean, um, it's it's interesting all around. We know we need to reduce plastic packaging, but it's quite encouraging when you see these huge giant companies taking steps towards it. I'm sure this will only be a small portion of what they do and they'll continue putting out those standard plastic deodorants. But optimistically maybe this is a sign that companies might change a little bit yeah i feel like when unilever are starting to do like refillables then <laughs> then I, I, it's, a, it's a good sign but of course it's that thing where it's a dove dispenser so you need the special dove blocks to fill it in like it's not like you can put any block of deodorant in there it needs to be a certain shape 
I think it's also an instance of an area where obviously like smaller studios have been doing work in this area refillable packaging and 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 that sort of thing for for ages and and doing almost like the heavy lifting around it and the project I'm thinking about here is one that we've covered in the past where Formus with Love the Swedish uh, Stockholm-based design studio had this venture that they've been working on for a few years and that is now live I believe called Forgo which is a a, a powder to liquid soap uh, that you get in a paper sachet and that you can then fill up with water so that you you get the liquid soap from the powder and you can use any foam pump and in any container you want but they have a container a refillable container that you can buy as an option but in theory you can use any pump that does foaming and that's the kind of example of a really a really well considered project where it's not just it's not locking the customer into just one brand and it also thinks about the entire logistics chain so not just of the container itself but the you know the paper sachets that the powder come in the fact that you're cutting out all this water weight from the logistics uh, and transport of the of the product yes so the final new product we want to talk about is Save, which is a new design for a toilet uh, from Laufen, the Swiss company. Now, listeners will have to uh, forgive us. We're not entirely clear on all the details of this. We have not had a chance to use the design ourselves yet. However, it's an interesting project, which I think... Uh, deserves some recognition. <laughs> I thought you were going to say listeners will have to forgive us because we're about to discuss filthy things. Uh, then There's nothing filthy about sanitation. <laughs> uh, no, this, you're right. This is a really interesting project. Laufen, uh, in collaboration with a number of organisations, uh, I should say, has identified this problem with how wastewater is uh, typically managed. And that is... Well, do you you want to help me explain? With pleasure. So the problem, as I understand it, is that urine, for instance, contains a lot of nitrogen and phosphorus, which, if they get into uh, water supplies, are really damaging to the environment. I should say that they're nutrients. It's not like they're unnatural, but in great quantities, which is what we're pumping out into rivers and oceans. They, they become harmful to ecosystems. Yeah, now there are technologies to try and reduce some of this nitrogen and phosphorus, to capture it and reuse it for other things. However, I think the problem is that that's quite hard to do if urine is mixed in with other things from toilets, basically. So if it's in with feces, if it's in with grey water, that makes it much more difficult. So what SAVE, this new toilet design, is, and it's been put together by the Austrian design studio uh, EOS, E-O-O-S, is it separates urine, basically. There's a urine trap, so when you use the toilet, the urine goes down a different pipe to faeces or grey water. We don't fully understand how this then slots into um, existing plumbing systems, for instance. I'm a little personally a little bit unclear about that. But I think they're they're upfront about the fact that this is it's it is now a commercial project product, but it's grown out of research. So they've worked, for instance, with the Swiss Federal Institute of Aquatic Science and Technology, who they developed some of the tech for this. And it, it remains a work in progress. But it's interesting to see someone considering these things, actually. Like, it hadn't occurred to me that there might even be um, a problem 
with this, within existing toilet design. So, you know, let's be honest, toilets are not always the most glamorous design project, I think, because there are so much of that stigma around the bathroom, around urine, around feces. But to have someone um, try and do something about this to identify a problem and think, well, how could it be re-engineered to tackle that, is laudable. I think the other thing worth saying is um, Laufen have said they're trying to develop a separating squat toilet for local production. And the idea is that that design would then be made available to produce and distribute in countries around the world. Uh, so that's that's an interesting aspect of it as well. And I think speaks to the fact that this it it began life as a serious research project and that side of it is continuing. Well, that brings us to a close for this week. It's all the time we have, but it's been a pleasure chatting with you. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, Ollie. And thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. You can reach us on at The Crit Design on Twitter and at The Crit Podcast on Instagram or on thecrit at designiomagazine.com. If you have any comments or questions, you can also leave us a review on the platform which you're using to listen to us. It really helps us with... Um, with the algorithm yeah well we'll be back in a fortnight in the interim for anyone who follows our wider work with Desenia, the quarterly journal of design we are currently on production with a new issue so that should be arriving in uh, early february that will be Desenia 28 <laughs> episode was produced by evie hall and edited by christina rapatsky our music is by yuri suzuki and team suzuki at pentagram